We're going to be in Luke chapter 2. If you want to take your Bibles out, there's also an outline in your program if you'd like to follow along as we begin to think about Christmas discovery. Our culture really gets into Christmas cards. I looked up some statistics and it's reported that Americans send somewhere around 2 billion Christmas cards every year. That's a lot of cards. Hallmark alone has more than 2,700 different Christmas designs available. How convenient for you to buy all those cards. Now, I want to confess that when we get cards in the mail, I'm guilty sometimes of just kind of quickly scanning, looking inside for a handwritten message, and I'll read that. Uh, Sometimes I like to catch up via those famous, uh, you know, Our family is so awesome Christmas letters where you tell all the wonderful things that are happening during the year. Uh, Some cards are sentimental. Some are kind of sappy. Others are kind of just predictable. And a few make you laugh. I like to laugh. I came across uh, a few comical cards, if you will. And one that really made me laugh is, is this one. Check this out. Christmas is just plain weird. What other time of year do you sit around staring at a dead tree in your living room and eating candy out of your socks? How about that? Well, behind all the serious and the lighthearted cards, though, stands this truth. This truth that at Christmas, we are celebrating the sending of God's Son into our world. Now today, we're looking at this theme of discovery. And at the heart of Christianity is the invitation to come and see. Come and see if what the Bible says is really true. Our Lord is an inviting God, and he wants us to pursue him, to discover him. That word discover means a thing found through exploration, or for the first time ascertained or recognized. And so it's my prayer this morning that for these next few minutes that we can get past all of the Christmas kind of clutter of the season and discover Discover what really happened 2,000 years ago when a baby in Bethlehem burst onto the scene. 19th century uh, poet and writer Marcel Proust has some great words that I came across in this regard. He wrote, the real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. I like that. So it's my hope that we will have new eyes to see the nativity, the birth of Christ. Now, you've probably heard this statement, familiarity breeds contempt, right? And that basically means that the more familiar we become with something, at best we get bored with it, and at worst, we start resenting it. That's why perhaps so many of us just quickly scan our Christmas cards. Don't read the the text or, uh, you know, oh, great, another peace or another, you know, joy to the world or another, you know, uh, Merry Christmas card. But this morning, I want to encourage us to try hard to encounter this particular passage we're going to look at in Luke as if we were hearing it for the first time. Now, the Jewish people had been pleading with God to come down into their world for a long time. 
For about 400 years before the time of Jesus, it was a time of silence. They hadn't heard from a prophet. They hadn't heard from God himself. It was just the phone line was dead. There was nothing going on there. Listen to this passage from Psalm 144, verse 5. This was written by King David somewhere around a thousand years before the time of Christ. He said, part your heavens, O Lord, and come down. That was his cry. And then some 700 years before the time of Jesus, the prophet Isaiah said something quite similar in Isaiah 66 or 64, verse 1, when he wrote, Oh, oh Lord, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Just rip it open and come down, Lord. Isaiah is bold about his longing for something more. He wants more of God. And he dared to believe that something better was coming. Even though his culture was corrupt and everything around him seemed so dark. Does that sound like any culture you might know of? He is longing for the Lord to somehow come down into his world and to eradicate the evil. And so he cries out for the Holy One to enter into the broken and desperate world in an extraordinary manner. Rend the heavens and come down. And guess what? The Lord has come down. He has If you're in Luke chapter 2, in just a moment, we're going to look at a a passage. Most people, I think, in the United States are very familiar with this passage in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. Because every Christmas since 1965, in between, you know, scenes of the Grinch slithering around Whoville and George Bailey looking for his wonderful life and Rudolph not playing any reindeer games, every year we hear from a young boy who knows the true meaning of Christmas. Let's, let's listen into his answer that he gave to a friend who asks, isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Direct your attention to the screen. I guess you were right, Linus. I shouldn't have picked this little tree. Everything I do turns into a disaster. I guess I really don't know what Christmas is all about. Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Sure, Charlie Brown. I can tell you what Christmas is all about. Lights, please. And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid, and the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Amen. God's word from our guest reader, Linus. Well, let's, let's set the scene for just a moment. An angelic intervention takes place when God shakes up the, the routine of some guys who are just out 
doing their job. In, in verse 8, there were shepherds living, living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. Now, in the early parts of Scripture, in the Old Testament, shepherding was considered a noble profession. Moses was a shepherd. But by the first century, the time of Jesus, shepherding had lost its luster. Shepherds made up the lowest class of people. They came in just ahead of lepers. That tells you how low down the totem pole they were, if you will. Living out in the fields, away from society, they were in some sense outcasts. They were rough and tumble characters who lived on the fringe of their culture. Now except for an occasional sound perhaps from a, a sleepy sheep, the night was quiet and then in the midst of the stillness, an angel of the Lord suddenly shows up. Verse nine, an angel of the Lord appeared to them the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified, terrified. Into the darkness of this silent night came the brightness of the glory of God. Have you ever been asleep and then somebody accidentally turned the light on in your room? It's like, oh, what's going on? Imagine that a million times over. The glory of the Lord shone around them. I can't imagine what it was like for those shepherds rubbing their eyes, shaking in their sandals. In fact, that word terrified means that they were both alarmed and agitated. Alarmed and agitated. That's totally understandable because angels often announced judgment. They brought bad news, but this time they had a message of joy. And of course, then the angels said to them, do not be afraid. Now here, imagine yourself, you're the shepherd. Here's an angel. Oh, don't be afraid. Angels often have to say that because it is a terrifying moment to be invited into the glory of God in a supernatural way. And so the angel has to say, chill out, guys. And you know, I was thinking about that, being terrified. And I thought, you know, there are people in our world today that are terrified. Some of you might be terrified today. Maybe it's about a job situation or a health scare or your financial concerns or your kids or your grandkids. And you look and you think and you lay awake at night and you are terrified. But the reason that the shepherds did not need to be afraid was because of the messenger, the message that these, this messenger was bringing. Verses 9 through 12. Good news, good news will cause great joy for all people. Folks, that's us. That is for us. And so if you were in that place of fear and anxiety and worry and doubt, if you're shocked awake all of a sudden, no that good news of great joy is for you. That phrase, good news, it's the same word that we get our, our, our word evangelize from, the gospel, good news. Notice that it's good news of great joy. 
great joy. That word in, in the original language is mega. You know what that means, right? Mega, exceedingly, large, loud, mighty. It's a superlative. The biggest of big, big joy. There is no bigger joy. The message is for then all people. But I want you also to know the word, notice the word you as well as the angel speaks to the shepherds. It's for the whole world, but it must also become deeply personal. This message is a deeply personal one, not just for the shepherds, but for you and for me. Well, as the shepherds are trying to just get a handle on the message from this one messenger, suddenly they're taken aback because what happens? Uh, suddenly, again, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God. Suddenly, they came unexpectedly. Can you imagine the sky just all of a sudden filled with a multitude of messengers? It's mind-blowing. The phrase heavenly host is a very specific phrase that in scripture refers to the Lord's army. And so suddenly the sky is filled with God's army. And what are they saying? Glory, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. Isn't that an interesting picture there? A vast army shouting out peace. We come in peace. Peace on men on whom his favor rests. And so friends, if we want to discover Christmas, for the next few minutes, let's allow these shepherds to show us a few things about real discovery. And the first thing I want us to note is that we need to go. Go, we need to make a move. After witnessing this incredible display of adoration and praise, the shepherds know that they have to move. When the angels had left them and gone into the heavens, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. They briefly discussed what they should do and were unanimous in their decision. Let's go and check this out. And I love verse 16 because it shows that all of a sudden their fear, their terror has been replaced with faith. And then their faith causes them to move, to do something. And so Luke says that they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. There was no delay. It says they hurried. It has the idea of speed. Let's get over there. We've got to see this. Come on, hurry up, guys. Can't you imagine one of the shepherds saying, come on, hurry up. Let's go. And then if we drop down to verse 20, we see that what happens as a result of their going they go and then all the things they had heard and seen which were just as they had been told. So they heard it, they went, and they saw it. Now just think about what would have happened had the shepherds, you know, kind of taken a little break. Well, let's take a couple of days to think about this, guys. You sure we want to go in there? You know, we're not popular in town. People don't like us. We're not well received. 
Maybe we need to pause and, and discuss this for a while. Mull it over. Think about it. No, that's not what happened though, is it? Now, I don't know where you are, my friends, but there is a point in our faith journey in which we must make a move. It's not enough to sit around perusing the pages of Scripture, and I'm not saying that that's a bad thing to do, but we must allow this to cause us to move, to go, to do. It's not enough to come and sit in the pews and the chairs at church because there's something more for us to go and do. To fully discover Christmas, we must first of all go, and then secondly, we need to know. Know. You know, too many times, too many people try to act like Christians. There's a difference between acting like a Christian and being a Christian. The rally of the matter is, until we truly know Christ, know him, we really can't do the Christian life. And that word know in the original language talks about a knowing of intimacy, a closeness, knowing God. We must know him so that we can do the life he has for us. Once we know once we know our direction will become clearer, our purpose will come into focus. You know, it's, it's interesting to me, the shepherds didn't pull up a bale of straw and make themselves comfortable there at the manger, did they? They didn't hang around and say, oh, let's just hang around with Joseph and Mary. This is kind of cool. Because now that they knew, they knew they had something important to do. Notice that the message they shared has nothing to do with seeing the amazing angels or meeting Mary and Joseph. They came to see Jesus. And then they head out to do something with their new knowledge. In verse 17, when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. Isn't that a great picture? Here's the, the lowest of low class guys. Dirty, smelly, hanging out in the fields with sheep, hanging out in the manger. Stepping in stuff that we don't like to step in. And all of a sudden, they're out there saying, guess what? Guess what we know? Guess what you need to know? Friends, we are here today because those shepherds couldn't keep quiet. And once we know Jesus, once we know Jesus, it will be obvious to others around us. Like the shepherds, Jesus calls us to reach out to people. It's not enough just to know, but to share. Which brings us to our first key point of our message today. To discover what Christmas is all about, we must realize that Jesus is hard to ignore, but easy to to miss. He's hard to ignore, but easy to miss. I'm going to share a story with you that was originally 
written, publicized in the Washington Post magazine in 2007. This story later won a Pulitzer Prize for writing. He emerged from the metro at the plaza station and positioned himself against a wall beside a trash basket. By most measures, he was nondescript, a youngish white man in jeans, a long-sleeved t-shirt, and a baseball cap. From a small case, he removed a violin. Placing the case at his feet, he shrewdly threw in a few dollars and pocket change as seed money, swiveled to face the pedestrian traffic, and began to play. It was 7.51 a.m. on a Friday morning. For the next 45 minutes, the violinist performed six great classical pieces. During that time, 1,097 people passed by. No one knew that the violinist was Joshua Bell, one of the world's leading classical musicians who regularly fills concert halls. But on this Friday morning, Bell played to a smaller crowd on one of the most valuable violins ever made, a Stradivarius valued at three and a half million dollars. The train station provided good acoustics for his performance and his beautiful music filled the morning air. Over the time that he played, seven people stopped to listen for at least a minute. 27 people gave money. Now, just to give a frame of reference, Mr. Bell was accustomed to getting paid $1,000 per minute in his concerts. But this day, in total, he received $32.17. At the end of each piece, there was no applause, just silent indifference. The master musician was essentially ignored. People walked past musical glory without giving it a second glance, with the exception of two people. The first was a postal worker named John, who had learned the violin in his youth. He recognized the quality of Joshua Bell's performance, and he stood enjoying it from a distance. And then there was a woman named Stacy. Stacy had seen Joshua Bell in concert just three weeks earlier and instantly recognized him. She had no idea what was going on, but whatever it was, she wasn't about to miss it. She moved closer, positioning herself front and center. She had a huge grin on her face, and she stayed until the concert was over. Later, Stacy told a reporter, it was the most astonishing thing I've ever seen in Washington. Joshua Bell was standing there playing in rush hour and people were not stopping, not even looking. Some were flipping quarters at him. Quarters, she said. I was thinking, what kind of city do I live in that this could happen? Quite a story, isn't it? Now in another place, at another time, the night was filled with heavenly music and brilliant light. Never has the earth seen such glory. Angels sang to some workers. 
about a majestic one, a savior, the chosen one, the long-awaited one, the Lord. His arrival was good news of great joy for all people. Where would the workers find this glorious one? In a palace? A temple? A concert hall with an orchestra perhaps? An angel gave the astonishing news, you will find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger, a feeding trough. Who would expect to find a heavenly king in such a setting? Usually he lived amongst the angels, not amidst cattle. What a surprising place to find God, the one who made the universe, placed himself in the inexperienced hands of a teenage mother and the rough hands of a carpenter. God among the ordinary. And most people missed him and went about their business. Jesus is hard to ignore, but easy to miss. Only some shepherds who were let in on the secret of his identity stopped to acknowledge him and enter into the joy of his presence in their world. You know, I think one of the great puzzles of Christianity is why did God do it this way? Why not make the angelic sound and light show a global event, right? Well, God came as a baby in a manger, at least for a couple of reasons. First, because I think God wants to be accessible to all people, especially to the least and the lowest among us. That's who Jesus spent most of his time on this earth with, the least and the lowest. Like a world-renowned violinist virtuoso playing in a train station, God made himself available to the masses so that we can all enjoy the beauty of his gift. I think then there's a second reason for God coming in as he did, and is that it's that he doesn't impose himself on people. Rather, he invites us. He invites us to enter into a relationship with him. The shepherds heard the angel's message and then they sought the Christ and they found him. And God invites us to seek and to find him too. Finding that violin virtuoso in the subway, John and Stacy rejoiced, didn't they? Finding Jesus in the manger, the shepherds returned, glorifying, praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. And this leads into our second key point this morning. To discover what Christmas is all about, we must receive a Christmas card from Christ. Let's go back to our theme of Christmas cards from the beginning. Did you know that the very first Christmas card to be mailed was designed in 1843 in London, England? A, a civil servant and entrepreneur 
Sir Henry Cole, finding that he was too busy to send out his customary Christmas letters to all his friends and, and, and acquaintances, commissioned his friend, the artist John Calcott Horsley, to design a card for him to send instead. And the card design, in, in true Victorian style, depicted two sides of Christmas. A central image which portrayed Henry's family in happiness with a plenitude of food and drink was flanked by two scenes showing the less fortunate, poor and needy being helped with gifts of food and clothing. The very first Christmas card mailed. But actually, friends, the first Christmas card was sent by God himself when he announced the birth of his son, sent to a depraved and destitute people like me, like you. And I want to propose that there are three words that appear in God's Christmas card to us. If we could see that card. And they're not the all too familiar joy and peace and Merry Christmas, but instead on God's Christmas card, we see the word close. Close. The shepherds were close to Christmas, but they still needed to make the journey to Jesus. And friends, it occurs to me that you may be close yourself, but perhaps you've not made the discovery that will change your life forever. The prophet Jeremiah wrote these words. They're directly from the Lord in Jeremiah 29, verses 13 and 14, when God says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. Close. God wants us to be close. A second word on the front of the card would be cost. Cost. The shepherds, did you note that they left behind their sheep? That was their job, their livelihood. That's all they did. And they left behind those sheep so that they could go and look for the Lamb of God. And friends, there is a cost for us too to truly discover Jesus. And we must not be afraid to pay the price. To know Christ will cost you more than you'll spend on presents this year. It will cost you your very life. Submission, obedience, that is the cost of drawing close to Jesus. The question we have to ask is, am I willing to pay that cost? So close, cost, and then a final word, come. Come. Like the shepherds, we don't need to have much. We don't need to know a whole lot. What matters is whether we'll go or will we just be content to stay the same. Because let's face it, staying the same, staying in our rut, it's what we're used to, right? To come means we got to get up and we got to go. We got to make some changes. 
But it's only in the going that we start to really discover the truth of Jesus, the truth of Christmas. Friends, God might be trying to break into our ordinary routine with the message of the good news of Christmas. He wants so much more for us. He wants us to experience more than that, what this world has to offer. He wants for us to live free from anxiety and fear and uncertainty and doubt. And so he beckons us, come, come. How long will we continue to ignore Emmanuel, God with us? When will we hurry to see the Holy One. He wants to bring joy into our midst, into the midst of all the hardship and the loss or the self-sufficiency of your life. Jesus says, come. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, says Jesus, and I will give you rest. Come. So friends, Jesus was born to the whole world, but he was also born to you. Christmas is real history, but it must become your story and my story. And this is the real Christmas discovery. Let's pray together. Father God, we are so grateful to be invited into your story. Father, we are amazed, Father, that you would provide a way of escape from this world for us. Lord, we are so grateful that the hope that we have does not come from our culture or our country or our upbringing, or our past. Father, our hope comes from knowing you, walking with you, seeking out the purpose that you have for us, stepping into your story so that it can be our story as well. Thank you, Father, for making this way. Thank you, Jesus, for coming and being our atoning sacrifice. Thank you for the peace that we have and the joy that we have and the hope that we have because of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen, amen. Well, each